Hi, I'm Kyle. And I'm Trevor, and uh, welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. Uh, if you're not familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a podcast wherein Kyle and I take turns introducing one another to films, and uh, in this way, we help one another to catch up on our cinema. Um, this month, uh, the month of August 2019, uh, is Anime August here at Catching Up on Cinema. Um, Essentially, the idea this month is that uh, Kyle hand- was kind enough to hand me the keys to the programming castle this month. Uh, so I get to make all the selections for the movies we're watching uh, for the entire month. Uh, and by the title, you can obviously tell we're watching nothing but anime. Uh, so last week, we covered the OVA series, um, part one and part two of uh, Otaku no Video, uh, the Gainax animation from 1991. Uh, and today... Uh, we're going to be talking about Ghost in the Shell, um, Mamoru Oshii's uh, 1995 sci-fi classic. Uh, this is a massively influential film and uh, manga series. Uh, countless references can be found in Hollywood and elsewhere around the world. Uh, it's a it's a big fucking deal. Yeah. Um, honestly, it's it's not a personal favorite of mine. Um, that's going to be a theme with a lot of the programming choices this month. Um, I'm not so much picking these movies based on like my personal relationship to them. Uh, more so, I'm picking them for like their educational value, I guess. Because uh, Kyle doesn't have much of a background with anime, and I'm basically trying to give him a good, solid introduction to what it has to offer, especially from, from my own perspective, uh, that being of a 30-something reformed anime fan, uh, someone who's been out of the game for about 10 years. Uh, So most of the choices are going to be firmly in the 80s and 90s as opposed to, like, the 2000s and beyond. Um, And this being 1995, this was kind of towards the height of my my interest in the medium. Um, But yeah, Kyle, uh, right out the gate, how would you feel about this one? I actually really like this one. Um, I still, I think that I like Ninja Scroll a little bit better. But <laughs> well, it is fucking Ninja Scroll. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, visually, this is really like this is great to look at. Um, the story is is coherent. I actually know what's happening uh, as opposed to Akira. Um, <laughs> uh, it's uh, we'll get into it definitely, but I see a lot of echoes of the Matrix, uh, a little bit of Blade Runner in here. Uh, yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Um, it, if I'm going to say for, uh, for the genre, efficient use of nudity. Um, generally that's, uh, not, not really what they get at with the nudity in, uh, anime, but, uh, interesting, interesting use here. Yeah. Um, probably the major distinction is that it's not exploitative. No, I mean, it's, it's not. It's present, but it's presented, um, I mean, the the term male gaze, I guess, is something you'll hear a lot in a a lot of film discussions, at least in the past few years. Um, Usually that refers to the way things are framed, the way things are edited, the way things are are presented to you, the audience. Um, And male gaze uh, refers to, like, presenting, say, like, the female form in a way that's meant to be, like, lascivious or, or convey certain feelings or, like, instill certain feelings in male members of the audience. Um as filmed by a person of the male gender or whatever. Um, this though, like the nudity is, it's kind of just there. It's just a thing that happens. And oftentimes there's actually like a utility to it. Like there's typically a reason for it. Um, and it's never 
presented in like a sexual manner for the most part it's just it's just nudity it's it's almost like walking in on like a like an artist studio or something and there's a, a model it's just like you're not meant to be like seeing that and and having a sexual response to it it's just it's there yeah um but yeah uh, this film uh, is based on a manga uh, that actually the director of this film uh, again mamoru oshi um this is not his property um the original author of the manga is uh, masamune shiro um he also did Appleseed and a few other pretty pretty big name manga and anime um but their sensibilities are very different as far as i know uh masamune shiro is more like tongue-in-cheek-ish and even his original character designs for the characters in this film are are a bit more cheeky um like the central character motoko uh, kusanagi she's a her character design is more distinctly feminine and like you know softer cheeks like poutier lips all that business um but mamoru oshi has very different sensibilities um from the original author so i don't i actually have zero background with with the franchise on the whole i've just my entire background with ghost in the shell consists of this film and the sequel um so there's there are multiple tv series and a comic that go with this so i don't know how how uh true to the brand this film is um but i feel it stands on its own in a lot of ways but um, mamoru oshi is a director that uh, i've told you about a few different times um i probably didn't emphasize who he was or his significance but for me he ha- his style is unmistakable um he's sometimes criticized for being a animation director who probably shouldn't be working with animation because um, i think you mentioned it off air that uh, in a lot of ways this this animation is film is shot quote unquote like a film yeah like like you would do like on a physical set or in like actual space like Very the way the so. camera's positioned it's not super experimental with like where they place the camera there's not a whole lot of intense camera movement um they're very judicious with their their lighting and their their shot placement and things like that their compositions um and yeah a lot of his movies the runtime generally consists of people just having conversations like he has action he has violence in a lot of his movies but the bulk of them are just like kind of normal people having kind of normal conversations in fact like one of the biggest tropes is um what what kind of dog was in this movie is that a basset hound there's a fucking dog i didn't even see a dog oh god damn it Kyle. <laughs> well anyway he has a thing for a specific breed of dog i think it's a basset hound so it's a it's like a recurring image in a lot of his films but another another recurring thing that happens across many of his films is uh people having conversations in cars while not looking at each other <laughs> and um that's not so much apparent in this movie but point is um to regardless of how much how much weight you put uh, towards uh, auteur theory, like how much stock you put into that concept. Um, his films have a very distinct look and feel to them. That's It's entrancing. Um, I don't know if his films are my favorite, but I do love the fact that I can put on any one of them and instantly know that he made it. Um, and that seems to be a kind of a theme with a lot of the, a lot of the movies we cover. It seems to be something both you and I value in our, uh, our film directors. 
Um, but yeah, Kyle, um, did you have any other comments about the movie before we get into the plot? No, it'll come up as we kind of work through the uh, as we work through the plot. Um, so overall, this is um, co- more or less a futuristic uh, cop story, and they're trying to track down this uh, this evil hacker, more or less, uh, by the name of Puppet uh, Master. Puppet Master, yes, Puppet Master. Um, but yeah, we get uh, the opening shots are like uh, some like just excellent cityscapes. I love like the negative space in here. I love the attention to detail. Um, yeah, we get our uh, protagonist uh, Major. Is that her name? Yeah, Major. Ma- uh, Motoko is her first name, but her rank is Major. And <laughs> so, if you want to call her that, I don't mind. Major Motoko. Yeah, I just yeah. I looked up online. I'm like, what's her name? I didn't catch her name. And they're like, uh, Major Motoko. But I guess she. I guess in the comics, she goes by Major. Oh. See, again, I've never read the comic, so you might know some more of that than me. See, I was trying to be cool. I'm like, oh, he's gonna, he's not going to know that I'm, I know her name. He's going to be like, oh, wow, oh. how would you know it was Major? I'm like, you don't even know, nerd. Damn it. <laughs> um. Oh, oh uh, before we get into it, though, Kyle. Which version of this movie did you watch? So I actually, uh, you had mentioned, like, do I have a way to stream this? And I looked up, I'm like, oh, yeah, easily I can stream this. So I rented, uh, it said, okay, this is um, uh, Ghost in the Shell 1995. So I clicked on it, and it's like 2.0. I'm like, okay, well, that's Mm -hmm. the only one on here, and it's animated for sure. I'm like, that must be it. And it got started, and I'm like, oh, okay, this looks about right. But then we get the shot of Major, and I'm like, oh, no, 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 that's digital. Like, that's not what is supposed to be happening right now. Um, so I found it on Vudu, um, not on Amazon, but uh, Vudu had it. I'm like, okay, this is, I started watching it, I'm like, okay, this is the correct one. Uh, so I did watch uh, the original, not the 2.0. Okay. Uh, yeah, the reason why I bring it up is because um, the Blu-ray that I own for this movie uh, has two different versions on the disc, um, one of which I have never actually watched because I can't stand the way it looks. <laughs> um, so the movie we're, we're talking about came out in 1995, mm-hmm. and uh, much like The Matrix, which would come out a few years later, the predominant color scheme is based in greens. Um and it has a wonderful look to it. Uh, it's largely hand-drawn animation. There is there are computer shots in there, uh, but it's few and far between. There's that one the technology. There's one particular uh, instance we'll get to. I have a question about, but we'll we'll, we'll get there. Um, I think I know what you're talking about, but yeah, we'll we'll get there for sure. But um, in 2008, this film was reissued. I don't know if it it got a theatrical re-release. I I want to say it did. Um, but I think at the time, uh, one of the Ghost in the Shell like anime television series, I think it was Standalone Complex, uh, was in full swing. And so probably for like promotional synergy, they re-released the original film. But they doctored or like redid a lot of the animation mm-hmm. uh, digitally um, to give it a similar look and feel to the TV show that was airing in 2008, which is many years removed from 1995 um including changing the the predominant color palette to like a creamy goldish like rose gold kind of feel um and then plastering cgi over a lot of the glorious hand-drawn stuff and i just can't stand the way it looks even though um the sad part is that the blu-ray that i own only has the original 1990 film 1995 film on it in a single definition so I take watching that over watching the, the 1080p uh, 
2008 version just because it's it's not what I remember and it just doesn't feel right to me. Well, you'd lose the essence of, on, of anime by doing that if you're watching you're watching it. I want to say whitewashed. <laughs> uh, but, uh, <laughs> that's a different ghost in the shell. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I figured that's not the the that's not what you wanted me to get out of it. Was the no, I, and I it didn't occur to me until I sat down to rewatch it myself. That I was like, oh shit, did, is Kyle watching two point um, I mean, that would have made for an interesting conversation because we would definitely have some instances where we'd both be pausing on the mic, going like, hang on. What? what happened? <laughs> it's like, like green. What? What? There's no green in this movie. Where are you talking? About? <laughs> but yeah, um, the it needs to be said the um, the studio that animated this film, and in fact, the vast majority, if not all, of Mamoru Oshii's movies, uh, production IG, uh, they have a varied skill set, but one of their one of their greatest gifts is uh, realism and naturalistic movement. Um, they have a they have an amazing gift for for rendering human beings that move like human beings. Um, like sure, they can do flashy action scenes and stuff, but for the most part, they have a they have a eye for detail that is truly exceptional. And their background paintings are top top notch, top notch, like top men. Like you can, top, you can top men. You can watch Akira, and you can really appreciate like knowing how much time went into making it, and appreciate the cityscapes and the backgrounds in it. But here, like this, is on another level. Like I, and yeah, I mean Japanese animation. That's actually like one of the things that they do best is background paintings. It's mm-hmm. like one of the easiest things to overlook in terms of like craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. But they, it's it's almost akin to a. I mean, this is probably a Japanese thing, but it's akin to, like, the model makers for Godzilla movies. Yeah. Where it's one of the things that's easy, like, the easiest thing to dismiss, to yeah. overlook. But the amount of love and effort that went into building all of those is just incredible. And it's I, the same with the background paintings. I think that um, one of the things that makes movies rewatchable, um, some movies are just good because of the narrative, like, the story itself is good to watch. Like, Princess, The Princess Bride is just a fun one to watch. But there are other movies that are rewatchable because of their use of negative space. Um, I'm going to keep um, hitting the nail on the head. 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's, it's the perfect <laughs> example. I'm like, you can rewatch that because it's, like it's like watching photography. Like it, it just, there's one scene where they go, before they go into space, they're in a room. Uh, like a, like in a, in a meeting, and just this, there's just this one shot where you're just like, oh my gosh, like it's perfect. I don't, it, it's hard to describe, um, but yeah, just going back and watching that, those scenes are worth the rewatch. And I could definitely see myself actually going back and rewatching this just to kind of look at it again. Well, I mean, it, it helps that it's 83 minutes long, and that is prob- very helpful. <laughs> probably, probably seven to eight minutes of it is just straight up montage. Mm-hmm. Um, which it puts it in like maybe the Rocky Four League in terms of ratio of montage to actual storytelling in your film, but um, yeah, from an audiovisual standpoint, this film is truly amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the story doesn't resonate with me as much as some others. I like the story. Uh, but it will. With- I think the story is more relevant today, maybe than it was in 1995. I fair. Honest. I think. I think that's fair. And we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll so, get to that. 
on that note, I, sh I guess we should get to it. Um, like you said, we do open with a cityscape and stuff. Some of the renderings are amazing here, but mm -hmm. um, the, like m the actual opening is just a line of text that flashes very fast. Oh yeah, very quick. The, I, I wasn't even yeah. ready for it. I was just like, oh shit. Oh. Yeah, it was gone before I could write it down, so I just looked it up. And uh, I'll read it back just so we can both have it as a frame of reference. But it says, uh, in the near future, corporate networks reach out to the stars. Electrons and light flow throughout the universe. The advance of computerization, however, has not yet wiped out nations and ethnic groups. And that, I think, is a huge part of why this is more relevant today than it was back then. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, uh, that's what plays us into the movie. Um, and yeah, we get, I think it's an aerial view of a cityscape. Uh, it's kind of, bat, kind of a Batman opening. She's up on a tall building. Um, it's very Dark Knight-ish. Yeah. Um, and the, the, it goes without saying, like, just a casual observer would notice this. So this isn't like a revelation or no. anything. But the uh, city design is, it's Hong Kong. Like, yeah. They say they're in Japan, I believe. Like, I believe the dialogue and the story take place in Japan, but the the drawings, like, the actual images that were being shown, it's fucking Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Um, uh, I know that there's um, a rift between certain Asian countries. There's a little bit of a hierarchy. And uh, sorry, Japan, but Hong Kong's pretty fucking incredible to look at. So just, it is. Just admit it. Just admit it. Just say, okay, fine, this is Hong Kong. This is a Japanese production, <laughs> but this is Hong Kong. No, I mean, I mean, Mamoru Oshii like was pretty open about saying like, oh yeah, we we took camera crews to Hong Kong and took tons of reference photos because yeah. he he decided a lot of it. Um, it's funny, it wasn't so much the beauty of the place; it was more the cloistered nature of it, because there are parts of Hong Kong that's like. So I live in a fairly small apartment by Seattle standards. No, um, you live in a you live in a pretty big apartment by Seattle standards, <laughs> but. If you for look at like, <laughs> like living living situations for uh, for people in other parts of the world, yeah, um, Hong Kong, it's like bodies on top of bodies on top of bodies, and that was part of what he was trying to convey. And, and similarly, I think that's part of what they're trying to do with Blade Runner, mm. which you had mentioned. This seems to draw some inspiration from. I love Blade Runner. Um, but yeah, we get some radio chatter um, in both English and Japanese. Um, there's some aerial units flying around this like beautifully lit nighttime cityscape and then we see uh the major motoko uh standing on top of a roof listening in on some sort of conversation that she's she's uh peering in on via like night vision goggles and uh one of the important lines of dialogue here that she overhears is there's no such thing as a bugless program um and like you had said um the, the shot of her standing on top of a rooftop listening to radio chatter, that's the Dark Knight. <laughs> um, like, Christopher Nolan, I don't know if you've seen Ghost in the Shell, but um, it's, o has. it's okay. It's okay. You can you can go ahead and give him a little bit of credit, because that's essentially what we're looking at here. Uh, um, yeah, he's and, seen and, it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another line of dialogue here is there's reference to something called Project uh, 2501 or 2501. Um, and we get to hear some uh, radio conversation. Uh, I don't think it's radio, but it's between uh, the major, Motoko, and uh, a character named Bato, who we won't meet for a little while here, but she hears a voice in her head, essentially, and it seems like she doesn't have any sort of communicating equipment on her head, so 
somehow she's being spoken to through her head and that's a major theme in this in this film and this franchise is uh, cybernetics so she has some form of like wireless communication just built into her brain essentially um and Bato comments that there's a lot of static in your brain uh, so maybe he's like offering some caution i guess like hey uh you got everything sorted out over there and uh she replies with the line uh, it's that time of the month <laughs> as she's like gearing up to to head out into some sort of action situation and then she very casually strips off her clothes oh yeah she drops trowel and then i'm like oh okay uh is this kind of movie all right uh so uh, i had a question for you so there is a live action ghost in the shell movie with scarlett johansson uh and i was like yeah I'm assuming the anime people really hate it because it's live action and it probably doesn't like it's hard to please the neckbeards and I feel like that was probably not pleasing for them but I saw her uh, like I'm like she just gets naked immediately on here I'm like so what's going on with that ScarJo Ghost in the Shell movie? Uh, how 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 literal are we going with this thing? Are they are they kind of cleaning it up a bit? Is it rated R? What are we talking about here? Uh, I think from what I from what I gleaned from the uh, trailers, uh, they did something similar with her the structure of her body. Where, as far as I understand, Motoko's body has no actual sexual organs to it. Like it has a female form, but it doesn't have the same mechanics. Yeah. So so when she says it's that time of the month, I don't think she actually does that. No, she doesn't. I don't think she does either. No, I I don't think she has any of those functions because she's essentially a robot, a cyborg. Um, and in, in the case of the live action movie, I think they they did that and they did a situation where it's like there's like a, a CGI bodysuit or something. So there's no nipples or anything like that. It's just like a doll's body. I'm sorry, this might be an off color joke, but if you want to drop another bomb on Japan, have ScarJo play uh, <laughs> an anatomically correct uh, major in the Ghost in the Shell. <laughs> like, full frontal. <laughs> like, you will make your money. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, you know that, that <laughs> flop that, that you that you had with that first Ghost in the Shell movie? You can make it all back. You just, can make it just all correct that one thing. back. You will <laughs> blow up the Japanese box office if you do that. God, you'll blow up every box office. My goodness. Yeah, she could yeah. retire if they paid her the right amount of money. She could retire off of doing Ghost. If she had just done Ghost in the Shell, legit like that, yeah. No, she's like, I want two hundred and fifty million dollars, and then I'm done acting because yeah, yeah. it would have made all the money. <laughs> just like shoves the director, and she's like, Nah, we're doing it. We're doing this right. We're doing this right. <laughs> I haven't I haven't checked in on her recently after her you know comments, but well, I'll have to check in after well, this. That, that Black Widow movie is still in full swing. Oh, I think. They, oh, they're not they going to not make that. No, no, of course not. But it that's I I don't know how far along they are in production or post production, but I know they had a teaser at Comic Con, so it, it's it's getting there. Is it going to make money? You think? Yeah, I think it will. Yeah. Um, I I mean. For me, she's not a selling point. Nope, she never really has been. Or is but, Jeremy uh, Renner, or I mean, not 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 the person, the character. The characters aren't even aren't the selling point. Hawkeye. Yeah, <laughs> you might as well make a Hawkeye movie. I'm like, oh my god, I'm asleep. I'm I'm no, asleep. What what they're doing is they're being very smart. Disney Plus is doing that thing where, uh, basically, they're taking the the B Squad, like the Anthony Mackies and the and the I don't even know the guy who plays Bucky, the yeah. Winter Soldier. Yeah, that guy. Um, 
they're taking all those people and they're putting them in the equivalent of like Netflix shows, so streaming shows. Yeah. So instead of movies, they get the TV show. Um, and yeah. Um, oh, it's Sebastian Stan, by the way, uh, is Bucky. And I could totally see them doing that with Hawk Guy. Uh, and uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, so Motoko is listening in on this conversation. There's some sort of shady deal going on. And we get mm-hmm. to see um, Bato and another character, Togusa, who has a super awesome Asian mullet. Um, <laughs> they're in some sort of command car together, and they're the ones who are communicating with Motoko via remote. Um, there's reference to two organizations, Re- uh, Section 9, uh, which I believe Motoko and Bato and the, and the crew, are our main heroes, basically, work for. And then Section 6, uh, which is apparently like a similar branch of law enforcement, but they're in conflict with each other. So there's some sort of bureaucratic argument or something that's an ongoing problem between these two organizations. Um, and then we get the iconic sequence where uh, Motoko jumps backwards off the, the roof of the building with like a wire attached. Again, very Dark Knight-esque. <laughs> Nolan, uh, you got some splaining to do. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, simultaneously though there's like a police unit like a bunch of armored guys uh, running up the staircase and i guess they're planning on raiding this meeting and uh man the there's a there's a lot of gun porn in this movie i'm not gonna lie um okay so real quick gun (laughs) porn um uh blade runner this handgun the revolver that one of these guys is using is almost identical to the one that harrison ford uses in blade runner he doesn't have a revolver though. He has a he has an automatic pistol. T- take a look at it like the way it looks. So the revolver the, revol- the revolver in here doesn't even really look like a revolver. It it's like mm. kind of slim on the sides where the um, the whole thing would be. I can't even think of the name of it right now. Uh, the barrel the cylinder. Yeah uh, the you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, the revolving chamber. Yeah the revolving chamber. You can't really see it on these guns, and it's very similar to the one in Blade Runner. If you take a look at um, an actual uh, actual one of those replicas, there is yeah. there is a little bit of a revolver look to it. Yeah, I mean the the Blade Runner blaster, quote unquote, has that chunky look to it. Mm-hmm. Like I love that the the grip on that thing is it's like a it's like as big as your face basically yeah it's like i don't know how big harrison ford's hands are but you you need to have some mitts to grip that thing properly but yeah i, I see where you're coming from um but yeah uh, mamoru oshii has a thing about mechanical designs um and it's something that I actually really do value with his design work um well not his design work but the things that he favors the things that he commissions other people to design for him is um he's really into uh realistic mechanics so things that value like function over form i guess so a lot of the mechanical designs in his in his properties tend to make some sense like just from a visual standpoint just looking at it it's like yeah that does seem like it has some heft to it that does seem like it would function the way it's portrayed as functioning and uh yeah there's a bit of gun porn here where uh one of the one of the guys in a suit in like the boardroom has a suitcase he just like shakes it off and it mm-hmm. just converts into a submachine gun. I was like, oh, that's so big. Gangster. <laughs> yes, that's pretty well, bitching. Actually, uh, it made me think of Robocop 2, which mm. I don't know if you've seen. I have not seen Robocop 2, but there's definitely a couple of Robocop 1 uh, uh, references in here that I, I kind of picked up on. 
I mean, almost any good sci-fi will have that. Because <laughs> RoboCop's the fucking best. Uh, no, I, have a... I haven't seen RoboCop 2. Uh, uh, maybe we should do that sometime, because I think it's underrated in some ways. It's I, solid. I definitely have some movies that I find underrated from the 80s, so I could definitely... Is that from the 90s? Is RoboCop 2 from the 90s? It might be 1990 on the dot. Well, we're planning a Peter Weller... Uh, uh, Weller's? Weller. Yeah, I, I really want to do that. Um, I mean... I didn't put that on the list, but maybe I could find a space for it. Leviathan is definitely worth a conversation. Uh, Fuck yes. <laughs> More people need to see Leviathan, even though it's not good. There's there's value there, people. There's stuff in there. Yeah, there's stuff. Um, so we're rating this, this meeting, and uh, some diplomat pulls the diplomatic immunity card. <laughs> oh, not only does he pull the diplomatic immunity card... He goes out like diplomatic immunity. Yes, he does. Exactly. I, I wrote it down. <laughs> uh, it's so subtle. That's the coolest thing about this is that we get uh, spoiler alert. We get a headshot, and I yeah. every time I every time I see a surprise headshot in movies, I might have I think I sent you that song by the band I like. It's about Halo, and the song is called Headshot. Every time I see a surprise headshot, I go headshot like <laughs> and uh, boom headshot headshot, and then I go. Oh, head explosion! <laughs> this guy's head just fucking boom goes scanners like all over the place. That's that's another thing that Mamoru Oshii does really well is subtlety. Mm. Um, he he oftentimes has action and extreme violence in his films, but it's usually kind of portrayed in a nonchalant manner. Where like in this instance, we get a person getting shot in the head, and everybody in the room is just kind of like, "What, what just happened?" And then his head explodes, and it's still what just happened. Like, it's not, it's not framed in a cinematic way. Well, uh, because there are there are ways to frame violence in such a way as to play up the spectacle angle of it. He doesn't mm-hmm. really do that. Well, it's all, like that is a thing that happened. All that happens in the animation, like what we're seeing, not what the characters are seeing, is that there's he's just standing there, and then there's just a black dot on his forehead, pretty much. So, you, and then mm-hmm. I think there might be like a little bit of like a out the back of the head. Uh, I can't be for sure, but yeah, it's very subtle. And I, if I had been looking down, writing a note, I wouldn't even caught it. I just, I was luckily I was looking at it right then. But yeah, just before he gets shot in the head, he's having this very, very Japanese argument with one of the officers who who kicks down the door. Mm-hmm. Basically, he's saying, "I have di- diplomatic immunity. I'm trying to get po- po- political asylum for a programmer." Put a pin in that. Um, and, th- and then this cop is arguing with him, like, while there's a bunch of guns drawn. Like, they're just going back and forth arguing. He's like, I have all my papers in order. I'll transfer you a copy in a few days. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, that's maybe the most Japanese thing ever said. <laughs> it's like, this is what this is how men in suits talk. <laughs> it's like, I will fax you a copy of my papers. Everyone put your guns away. Yeah, don't worry um, about this. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a bad move, honestly. Like... You just yeah. be confident, like no, no, no. Put your guns down. It's fine. I'll, I'll send you the copies. Just don't worry about it. It's just, it's fine. <laughs> but I just like how, how, like he's like, I don't even have it on me. It's just like I'll get it to you when I get it to you. <laughs> I don't have fucking time for this right now. Yeah. But yeah, um, he is rudely interrupted by a shot through the window. I, I believe Motoko says something here. I can't remember the line of dialogue, but she verbalizes something from outside the room, and everybody freaks out for a second, and then all before anyone knows what's happening. Diplomat gets a bullet in the forehead. He spazzes out for a couple seconds, and then his head explodes. Yes. It's juicy. Um, yeah. But we see, like, just a, a little glimpse of, like, his spinal cord on top of his shoulders. 
and we can tell that he's not 100% human. No. Um, so he had some cybernetic implants of some sort, uh, or I don't know how, how robotic he was. And then we get this very Hans Gruber-esque shot of her like disappearing into the ether. So the cops run to the window where the bullet came from, and they see Motoko like, essentially falling away from them, and it's in super slow motion. And she's, we see her face, but she's like receding into like some sort of camouflage or like cloaking. They call it thermo optic camouflage. But basically, it's the shot of this this woman falling off a building in super slow motion, looking up at us, and then she just disappears like a ghost. Um, and it, I could not help but think of Hans Gruber falling off that building in slow motion. <laughs> yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Fun diehard fact. Do you know how he got, how, uh, why he made that expression like that? Because they dropped him. Yeah. Without him knowing that. <laughs> without telling him. We're going to go him. on three. One, boom. Yeah, so he wasn't ready for it, which is no, nice. I love, I love seeing the making of that, how it was actually like a crash pad with essentially like a matte painting on it. That's pretty cool. I did not That's know badass. that. I didn't know like that. Was... He he basically did like a, a circus stunt. That's like, pretty cool. He did he didn't say I'm ready to go, but <laughs> but All it right. looks great on film. In All fact, right. the lighting of that still looks good. It still looks perfect. I'm, if you ask me, I'm due for a rewatch of one and three. One the third one's been on my mind for like a month now. I just haven't has. You know when you want to watch a movie, you want to rewatch it, but then when you go to sit down to watch a movie, you're like, nah, I'm not in the mood for it right now. It's been like that for like a month. I hmm. I need to I need to pull the trigger on it. That was me and Highlander this week. Oh god. For some for some reason I was just like all about Highlander this past week and I sat down and I watched like all of them. I've tried and they they're all bad. <laughs> I've tried so hard to get through Highlander. I've tried three times to get through Highlander. I've I can't make it halfway through. It's well, so bad. Kyle, let me ask you this. They're they're all bad. I, I still enjoy them. They are all bad. Mm-hmm. Like, not even the first one's good. But did you pay attention to the shots in the first one and the editing? Like I said, I got through almost half of it. And I just, it, the jumping around, it was just making no sense. It was so corny. I just couldn't. Because okay, the only thing that makes the first one special, if you ask me, is the soundtrack, which is largely Freddie Mercury. Um and then the shots and the editing because some of the transition work and some of the ambitious like crane shots they do in that mm-hmm. are pretty pretty striking but the story and the acting the <laughs> script is wretched yeah it's horrible and christopher lambert i don't know how the fuck he got cast for that like how do you take a frenchman and ask him to be scottish and then ask him a blind man to wield a sword in multiple films yeah right <laughs> like how do you get that gig because i want some of that <laughs> anyway yeah uh opening credits this is one of my very favorite opening sequences in any film um mamoru oshi has two films a, a pat labor two has one of my very favorite opening sequences in any film i think i've sent it to you more than once um this one's right up there with it though because holy shit this animation is gorgeous uh the music oh man the music is done by a a fellow by the name of kenji kawaii who is a 
fairly prolific Japanese composer. He's worked on many, many a great film, almost all of Mamoru Oshii's films, as far as I know. Uh, and funny enough, he does a lot of Chinese movies. Um, mm. He did all the Ip Man films, which uh, if you've been following the show, we covered actually the first Ip Man film. Um, very, very strong composer. He loves him some synthesizer though. Uh, it doesn't work all the time, but in this case, pitch perfect. Uh, the the uh, choir is unique. It's like Akira level, like unique. Um, but yeah, uh, some of the imagery here, Kyle, like fuck. It's, it's <laughs> fantastic. I, I, that was one of the notes. I'm like, the title sequence is great because we're going back and forth. I, I like this in movies and there's, I, I, I can see it in my head, I can't think of what I'm thinking of. I can't think of the movie, but where we're going back and forth between credits, but we're also moving, like we're getting um, a little bit of backstory for the movie, like a little bit of the character. Um, like we're sh- we're going back between credits, and then um, I think they have her like they're they're showing that she's um, is she technically a cyborg? Is yes. she full cyborg? Yeah. Yes. Um, but yeah, we're going back and forth between shots of the credits, and they're kind of moving the, the story along, saying that she's... How, how would you describe her? So, the actually, funny enough, the name of this piece of music is, I think, just called Making of a Cyborg, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what we see. It's it's essentially like watching a cybernetic body um, from, like, like, think Terminator style. Yeah. So we go from the skeleton, from the mechanical skeleton to the human skin covering. So we keep cutting back and forth in this this wonderful rhythm mm. and he does the exact same trick in pat labor 2 where it's tight it's title card uh, a bit of montage of doing something industrial title card industrial footage you know what i'm talking about yeah anyway so we get to see the creation of her body like in a factory basically like oh i'm thinking of being a cyborg i'm thinking of alien 3 i believe i think alien 3 starts with something along like yes it's, it does actually okay that's um, what I'm thinking we keep of. cutting to footage of the alien the face hugger crawling into the the stasis tank yeah and then it keeps cutting back to credits Ooh, good good know. memory kyle i didn't remember that until just now but you're right i might be watching David, that later damn that movie there's so there's so much to say about that movie oh we'll um, have plenty to talk about here in uh, september spoiler yeah, alert get, September. <laughs> do you remember um <laughs> but yeah um this montage basically shows us the creation of, like, I don't know if it's a new body from Motoko, but as we learn throughout the movie, she is essentially like a full body replacement cyborg. So her essence is maybe the only thing that's actually her. Everything, I th- like, her entire physiology is mechanical. That's what I was kind of getting. Um, I'm, I'm comparing it to uh, Alice from uh, Resident Evil and... Uh, <laughs> uh, I you know what I rewatched the 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 last Resident Evil movie. I still oh, fuck. it's still fun, dude. I don't know what it is about that movie, but I find it very watchable. Um, I it's need not an good. excuse to go through all of those. Cause if we I, do, have, I think I missed one or two of them, but they're they're stupid fun. So they're so stupid. The beautiful thing, fun. the beautiful thing about the Resident Evil, this last one, the final chapter, I think, is what it is. Sure, I, I did see that one. <laughs> it, but they recap everything at the beginning. Which is really great. You know how much money those movies have made? I almost texted you while I was watching it. It's ridiculous. Like a, like a billion dollars. They like. I'm like, why are there so many of these movies? And I looked at like they the, make bank. They make money. It's crazy. I'm like, no wonder she's yeah. doing these. Um, <laughs> but 
Yeah, they recap everything at the beginning of that movie. But um, I think that essentially that's what Alice is, is that Mila, uh, Mila Jovovich's character is this, like, prototype cyborg, but they have, like, a shit ton of them. And yeah. it's her essence going into each one of these things. That's what I kind of got from this. Well, in Motoko's case, yes. Um, but that's one of the central, like, themes to the plot mm-hmm. is that, like, is she a person? Because all she, like all she is is just electrical signals that form memories. And this is like every- do androids dream of electric sheep? This is kind of the idea in Blade Runner, which and this is kind of an idea that we explore in the Matrix. Um, that's where yeah, get echoes yeah, but, here. But again, that's why I think the story is probably more relevant today than it was in 1995 because we're approaching that point where we're starting to do this shit. Yeah. Um, um and yeah, I. It's we're a, start- it's no, no, a no. central part. We're not starting to do this stuff. You and I are just hearing about them doing this stuff. Somebody has got their own fucking Michael Fassbender from Alien Covenant somewhere <laughs> that they're like, tell me, like, oh, if you created me, then who created you? Like, there's they someone's got that android somewhere. Well, it it's like not to completely derail things, but the the theme that I'm I'm kind of pushing here is that of transhumanism. Yeah. Where we're we're reaching a, a stage in in our evolution as a species where we're starting they're starting to become like almost like a widespread desire to migrate away from humanity where like for instance having more of an online presence or like even something as simple as like having an instagram account or something that you put more of your self-worth into than your actual physical being and your relation your relationships to people one-on-one mm-hmm. something like that is like is the human body and your your physical representation as important as that of how you present yourself mm-hmm. so you can you can choose to present yourself like these days almost any way you want yeah um and in Motoko's case like i think that's part of why they use nudity and things like that in this the way they do is to represent the fact that is it even important that she's a woman because no. it really probably I'm- isn't it makes no difference for the character in this in this movie. Like it exactly. It, it does not matter. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, keep that as Kyle and I are talking Sorry. about that. I keep keep that thought in your mind because it's a huge theme for the film. I'm just saying those same philosophical questions are echoed in subsequent or well previous movie Blade Runner, subsequent movie The Matrix, and it keeps coming up in yeah new, what, movies now sci-fi movies. i mean to to quote castlevania symphony of the night what is a man a miserable <laughs> little pile of secrets <laughs> thinking thinking meat following our uh, opening credit sequence uh, actually it, it takes a it takes a few minutes to uh, fully peter out um motoko wakes up in her apartment and it's pretty much entirely dark and there's some really great subtle animation of when she first wakes up like it looks so genuine like mm-hmm. the way she shakes off her you know sleepiness like there, she does a little thing where like she she brushes a finger over one of her eyelids and she opens her window and we get this gorgeous shot uh, from essentially her doorway looking towards her bed and her window and it's just like a, a shot like overlooking a cityscape and the only light in her apartment is coming through the window and it's oh, it's gorgeous composition. Yeah. And then she steps out of frame and like puts on a jacket and then walks past the camera and uh, I believe 
the music from the title sequence actually continues throughout the entirety of this and it just kind of drones on for a good solid minute it's one of those like almost like hitchcockian things where it's like what are we doing here it's like it this is this is nice but i don't know what we're doing here <laughs> and then i think she shuts the blinds and the music just crashes to an end and then end scene it's brilliant fucking brilliant <laughs> yeah uh, and then, uh go ahead what I was gonna say, don't we oh, cut to the the garbage guys? Uh, not quite. No, uh, we get a, we get a little bit of a briefing. Um, so a, a VTOL lands on the roof of a uh, Section Nine headquarters, and we get to meet uh, Mister Aramaki. He's the guy with the Doctor Wiley hair. Yeah, minus minus the mustache, but I guess push the mustache down to his chin. <laughs> um, I think this character in the live action version is played by uh, Beat Takeshi. It's like a like super powerful uh, actor slash director from Japan, um, from the trailers anyway. That's what I got. But Mr. Aramaki, in my notes, I was largely referring to as the boss because he's basically the chief. Um, and we get the first instance of a situation. Um, this is another staple of a uh, Mamoru Oshii's writing style, where we're having a conversation in elevator, and it's between. Uh, a gentleman, I think his last name is Nakamura, um, from uh, Section 6, again, the, the rival organization to Section 9, uh, talking to Mr. Aramaki. And the way they're talking, uh, like I said, this is kind of a staple of Mamoru Oshii's writing, where uh, they're, just throwing ju- they're just throwing jargon and stuff at you that there's, there's no... Exp- it's all exposition, but without, without going into the details of like what they're actually talking about so he's not pandering to his audience he's basically just assuming that you'll figure it out so at this stage in the film like both you and i are probably like okay that's a lot of buzzwords i'm trying to make sure to file them away because i'm sure they'll be important later but for for now i don't have a fucking clue we're talking about (laughs) um but the main thing here is that uh there's a there's a colonel named malice and uh section six wants to deport him and by the way, they also send their thanks to Section 9 for assassinating that de- that diplomat for them. Um, again, th- stuff is moving. I'm not entirely sure why <laughs> or what's important and what's not, but it's interesting. Um, and then we get to meet uh, the foreign minister's interpreter. Well, not necessarily meet um, because her brain was hacked off screen. And she's just like on an operating table here. And this is where we get uh, introduced to the plot of the film, uh, that of the puppet master. Um, and do you have anything you want to say about this scene, Kyle? No, I, this at this point, um, sometimes with newer, so when I'm watching something new, if I'm not entirely sure what's happening yet, I'm, I'm not really, it, it doesn't really um, sink in. So at this point in the movie, I'm like, I'm like, okay, I'm not really sure what's happening just yet. It'll make a little more sense once it, once it gets going. So I'm a little hazy through this, this area. I didn't, I don't have good notes right here. The, the main thing to take away from this scene is that there's a, there's a young woman laying on a, laying on a gurney essentially. And she has strings of wires coming out of the top of her skull, uh, hooked up to a computer. And as it so happens, her brain was hacked by someone. So, so we th- so we're establishing the rules of this universe that oh people have computer brains and they can be hacked. At this point, I'm 
the matrix is playing in my head and it was bothering me. That's why I wasn't paying attention through here. Um, <laughs> because I was like, man, I'm like, this is really feels like major, like the matrix. I'm like, even major reminds me of Carrie Ann Moss a little oh, bit. Do you want to, you want to talk about that now? Like yeah. Wachowskis and, I, and, uh, it, and this movie? I found it distracting. I found it a little distracting while I just started watching this. And then I kept like making notes. I'm like, uh, it's a little more Blade Runner as it goes along. But, uh, yeah, um, this movie, uh, if you've seen The Matrix, will feel very familiar. Um, there's a few things in here that uh, I think the Wachowskis, I don't think they were trying to, I don't think there's enough for plagiarism, or I don't think there's a, any kind of uh, court case no. you can make out of this. Um, but there are definitely themes uh, as far as like the philosophy of what is real, what is human. Uh, I think that kind of parallels in The Matrix and this. But also, the world that uh, they build up with the the cyborg data jacks yeah the data the, the data stuff like that just that visual kind of got me and I'm like oh well that looks like what they did with the matrix I'm like are they trying to was that what the Wachowskis were trying to get at like that were these even real people I don't know it it, it I was kind of lost in thought during this part so I I, I was a little um, confused but the Wachowskis apparently showed. The, is it the producer? Uh, the producer for the movie, yeah. uh, Joel they, Silver. Yeah, uh, I guess they got a lot of inspiration from Akira Ninja Scroll, and apparently they wanted to do like not a live action version of this movie, but this was um, kind of the influence for The Matrix, um, yeah. quote unquote. I don't. I'm not entirely sure how accurate that is, but you can you can see it. Well, I think the I think the quote you sent you sent me from the uh, the trivia there was um, they presented they asked Joel Silver to watch the film and they said we want to do this but but live action yeah and I guess that was their pitch for the Matrix and Joel Silver is a I mean he has a strong track record for backing some pretty strong horses and obviously the Matrix worked out for all of them yeah um, but I think thematically uh, Ghost in the Shell was probably it probably resonated with the Wachowskis like on a very deep level. Uh, Cause again, that, that transhumanism component of the story is not something you can overlook in reference to the Wachowskis. No. They have, they have a pretty consistent theme from like probably the matrix onward. Cause I think they did assassins. I think they wrote that, that shitty Stallone versus Antonio Banderas movie. Oh Lord. That is not a good movie. <laughs> I think they wrote that. The Wachowskis um, don't have a good track record to be honest with you. Uh, it's more more misses than hits, um, but their perspective is definitely unique. Yeah. Um, but the point I'm trying to make here is, like, from The Matrix onward, there is a fairly consistent theme across many of their films, except maybe Speed Racer, <laughs> <laughs> that uh, it oftentimes has to do with, like, a disconnect between the essence of a person and their physical form. Um, like... Uh, your favorite cloud atlas oh i love it we have instances of hugo weaving being a, presented as a female nurse i believe <laughs> and then an eight and then an asian a korean man and then a like slash from guns and roses at the end but like with frankenstein makeup um and then the matrix obviously you have a situation where people have digital selves and then they have physical selves and those don't necessarily jive with one another um it probably was if you had made that movie today and I'm, i i know for a fact they're trying to get another one going are you serious I think, oh i'm so i think down. that's 
I think that's what you're going to see is like a Ready Player One style presentation where the the Matrix version of of our lead characters are probably going to be radically different from their physical self because that's I think more genuine to what the actual online experience is like. Most people, if given the option to create an avatar for themselves, won't put themselves in in the virtual environment or wherever. They'll go with what truly appeals to them or what they feel best represents them. And I feel like the core theme of Ghost in the Shell definitely is something that probably spoke to both of them at this point in their life. And um, also, it needs to be said, uh, there's a little thing called Shadowrun. Um, it's a, it's like D and D, but cyberpunk future. And by the way, it takes place in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> and as far as I know, it came out in like the late '80s. So I would not be surprised if like the data jacking element of that. Um, probably could have inspired Mamu, uh, Masamune Shiro in writing the Ghost in the Shell manga and like and the Wachowskis because I'm pretty sure they were familiar with Shadowrun. I would. Uh, my brother so. was familiar with Shadowrun, so you know, like he wasn't super into the the nerdy tabletop culture, but he he touched it. He touched and, it. <laughs> yeah, he he touched the darkness. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, the scene with the foreign minister's interpreter, um, basically what we what we the audience learn here is that people have computer brains and they can be hacked and there's a character by the name of the puppet master who's apparently super fucking good at it um so as we're trying to pursue this uh this puppet master um motoko is assigned to rendezvous with our buddies uh bato and kai uh kai who i more more commonly think of as togusa um but basically the two guys who were in the command car in the the first mission we saw them all on uh, so it's just like section 9 suspects that uh, Puppet Master is American he's a cyber terrorist and this is his first time operating in this country which I think we mentioned is supposed to be Japan um, but the visual aesthetic of it is most certainly Hong Kong <laughs> Yeah. Um, and apparently they're using some sort of outdated computer um, and then we get a scene where Motoko is riding around in the back of a van uh, gearing up so she's like putting on body armor and like assembling a gun and we get some more gun porn here uh, and she's talking to Togusa who's uh, driving the van and uh, the gun porn is uh, she's basically criticizing his choice of weapon um, he has a revolver and she's like oh you know I know those don't jam so I, I understand the practicality in selecting it but I need you to use something else and it's it's just a back back and forth technical jargon. Uh, you can tell that uh, Mamoru Oshii was probably really into that, probably jerking it a little bit while he's writing it. Mm. Um, um, but we get an, a really important little detail here that, um, well, not really important, but it's a detail that I appreciate. Um, basically, Motoko explains why Kai is on the team. Um, and her reasoning is that he doesn't really have many cybernetics. Um, so she's basically a full-body replacement cyborg. So she's a robot person. And Bato, like, I don't know if we mentioned, but his eyes are basically just two lenses implanted in his face. So he is very blatantly a cybernetic organism of some sort. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, whereas Kai comes across as pretty much straight-up human. And uh, she explains that uh, she she wants him on the group because his perspective and his reactions will be different from her and Bato. Where it's like, 
His reactions may be inferior, but they'll be unique to her and Bato. So basically she's saying me and Bato like have these mechanically enhanced reflexes and cognition cognitive functions um, that you don't have and therefore your perspective will be different in some fashion and it might be valuable to us mm-hmm. um, so she's teamwork. looking for variety yeah teamwork because uh, if you have all the components working in the same fashion you're just going to get a singular result as opposed to having some variation among them where it's like okay we can we can change it up on the fly um, but now we get to the garbage men Oh yeah, they're um, what is it? So I have uh, my notes are brain plugs, van ride, garbage truck, and I have <laughs> garbage truck as a question mark. I'm like, is that a garbage truck? And it's these two fellows just riffing back and forth. I don't know what their significance is really, um, but what did they, they end up picking up something that they're not supposed to? Is that what I so understand? The back and forth that happens between these two people is that uh, gar- the one guy who's driving, uh, he's stopping at a bunch of payphones and making like doing some sort of transaction at these payphones and by the way the mechanical design of these phone cards like i don't know who designed that it's such a small detail but it's damn sexy (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah this driver um, we learn that he wants to uh, quote unquote ghost hack and i interpret uh, hacking one's ghost as essentially intruding on their their essence or their personhood um, via via you know computer or via like Wi-Fi or or what have you, um, so he wants to ghost hack his wife so he can learn what she's thinking because apparently they're getting divorced, and he exposits that he met some hacker at a bar who said I can do that for you but you just got to make a bunch of phone calls at all these payphones for me. Apparently this guy is quite dense because <laughs> that is suspicious as all hell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so at this point I don't think. Uh, our heroes are aware that they're supposed to be tracking down these garbage men um, but we keep cutting back and forth between our, our heroes driving around town and these garbage men making various stops um, needs to be said Bato is with a, I didn't catch his name but he has a beard, it's pretty cool looking, but they're driving around this red sports car, because that's what you do uh, so they're also on the same mission they're supposed to rendezvous with Motoko um, but this is where we get to see the data jack uh, for the first time. Um, so Motoko is now sitting up front in the van and uh, just these fucking metal prongs come out of the back of her seat and stab into the back of her neck. <laughs> and she uses the 1995 equivalent of Google Maps mm-hmm. <laughs> via these prongs in the back of your net uh, to uh, access information uh, probably from the city or something. Uh, to map out the routes of all the garbage trucks in the area uh, because somehow she got wise to the fact that we're looking for a garbage truck. Um, I think she reasons that it's because uh, garbage trucks have an excuse to to start and stop constantly and constantly be on the move. Um, and then without moving her lips or her face or anything, uh, she electronically takes control of the car from Togusa. <laughs> and it's kind of, kind of cool. <laughs> Um, yeah, the the other two uh, is it Batu? Is he with the other guy? Or yeah, the beard beard man. Beard man. <laughs> they uh, <laughs> they pull up to where the garbage guys were just at, and um, a guy comes downstairs. He's like, "Oh, I was gonna take my garbage out, but I must have missed him." This guy sounds exactly like Don Knotts. I thought it was Don Knotts, Barney Fife from uh, uh, Andy Griffith. 
uh, I was like, oh my gosh, that is not what he's supposed to sound like. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's what they <laughs> intended. Um, but yeah, I guess they just missed him, so now they have to go try to get these guys. Yeah. Um, and long story short, um, basically we, uh, we're following this garbage truck, and the driver becomes aware that they're being tracked because uh, their their boss, presumably at the dump or whatever, actually calls their truck and says, like, hey, why are the cops looking for you guys? <laughs> so the driver uh, hits the gas, and he's in a bit of a panic. Um, and then we come across some gentleman uh, wearing sunglasses at a mm-hmm. payphone. And uh, this, is a, this is one of the more famous sequences in this movie. Um, there are several, but this is one that definitely stuck out to me, especially the first time I saw it. But um, this guy is immediately suspicious, um, and he's staring straight ahead down the road, and uh, I believe the garbage truck and Motoko's van are driving straight towards him, and we get this really cool shot from perspective, from his perspective, of a, like a normal human's perspective of two cars driving towards him. But then, like, a, there's a static flash, and it zooms in. So it's like, oh, he has robot eyes. <laughs> he has robot binocular vision, which is not something we have today. No. Um, and then he pulls out a, like, what looks like a micro Uzi. So a very, very compact submachine gun. And he lays into this fucking van. Yeah. And um, it's pretty fucking... Like, on a conceptual level, it's really cool to look at. Because um, he pulls out this SMG, and it's beautifully rendered, very realistic. And we see him, like, plant his feet. Like, he takes up a stance. And then as he's as he unloads this submachine gun, we, sh- we actually see him, like, sliding backwards. So apparently the, the force, uh, the, re- the report of this gun is, is such that it's pushing his entire body backwards. So the impression we get here just from that visual is that this is no ordinary gun. It may be compact. It may look like something we have, what we had in 1995, but it's shooting something else. (laughs) And he flips the fucking truck and the van, I think, with that. That's pretty fucking cool. (laughs) Um, So yeah, during the shootout, I was going to ask you, um, I thought it was kind of neat how they do the the bullets in the truck. So... Yeah. Um... So the truck's sitting there, and it just it it dents that he like sprays bullets across it. It's like I thought it was pretty neat because I'm like, okay, so if we're hand drawing everything, we have the same truck, and then bullet creasing in here, bullet going in there, bullet going in there. It just seemed like it would take a lot of time to do that. I I could be wrong, but well, it's it's funny. I can't remember exactly how that shot plays out, but if the truck was not in motion, um then yeah they could just apply decals mm-hmm. to 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 that plate i guess uh so just like put the bullet impacts on there one at a time on top of each other and just create layers upon layers upon layers mm-hmm. um but if they had to animate the entire truck moving then they'd have to redraw each each and every one of those bullet impacts individually over and over and over again yeah the truck's not moving so i'm assuming they just put yeah they probably yeah just layer upon layer of, of bullet decals oh, <laughs> Uh, which I mean, on a technical level, what's really cool about like all of the the gunplay in this is that, like you said, it feels like you're watching a movie. Yeah. Where it feels like you're watching like a rigged explosion or something. Where it's like it doesn't feel like you're watching a drawing. It feels like it has like weight and impact to it. Mm. It's it's 
very good stuff. <laughs> it feels like it's working within the limitations of camera use. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, there's there's a the adherence to f- like real life physics is apparent. Like you can yeah. tell that they took that into consideration. Yeah. Um, it's it's admirable. It's not something you see every day in animation. That's a little. Um, it, it, it's not what you're expecting in an anime because I'm expecting like weird close-ups and like mm-hmm. yeah, just stuff like that. I mean, if like, you look at the Yoshiaki Kawajiri, the guy who did Ninja Scroll, mm-hmm. he his use of camera movement in particular, he takes advantage of the fact that it's just drawings. Yeah. So you you can do whatever crazy horseshit you want, but Mamoru Oshii, he treats it like a film. It's yeah. like no, like. Uh, like logistically that would be impossible so we can't we can't shoot from that angle yeah and his compositions in particular look filmic uh, they look like almost something you would like a photographer would do in fact a lot of his montages are wordless and it's just strictly images um it look and each and every composition is just gorgeous but enough uh enough gushing on that <laughs> <laughs> we have an action sequence to talk about here so um so yeah, uh, as it so happens, uh, this gentleman with the sunglasses has thermo-optic camouflage, uh, similar to what Motoko had in, in the very first scene we saw her in. And he uh, he runs away. Bato takes some shots at him, and it, we take shots back and forth. It's it's a typical 90s action scene. <laughs> um, so Bato and Motoko are both pursuing this guy, and... Uh, Bato's like chasing him on street level, whereas Motoko just like effortlessly scales a roof, parkour mm. style. Um, and we get like some beautiful renderings of like a like a Chinese street market, basically. Yeah. Um, the attention to detail here uh, is pretty fucking amazing. Yeah. Um, Bato actually goes into the market on foot. Um, he's looking for this guy, and it's a very suspenseful scene for a few seconds. Um, and he uses his cybernetic eyes to spot the hacker in the crowd. Um, and she chases him out to the docks. Um, Motoko takes some shots at him from the roof. There's a beautiful shot looking up from the slum area, just like looking straight up from like an ant's perspective up through the buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's one of those uncommon perspectives that's, it's, Maybe the least common perspective we as people have of of things is looking straight up. Uh, So it's always eye-catching. And then we get probably, like, one of the most famous scenes in the whole movie where um, the gentleman with the sunglasses uh, discards his jacket. He runs out to, like, a bombed-out slum area, and there's this pool of water. And he jumps in there, and all of a sudden he starts getting beat up by the air. (laughs) Yeah. I... I think I saw this recreated in the trailers for the live-action movie. Uh, understandably so. It's pretty badass sequence. So basically, um, Motoko is now wearing the thermo-optic camouflage, and I'm guessing the, this guy's camouflage was built into the jacket that he discarded. Not sure why he did that. Yeah, I don't know why he um, did that. But yeah, we get an entire... like It's pretty brief, but it's a like a hand-to-hand fight sequence where this man is getting beat up by an invisible <laughs> opponent. <laughs> And he gets beat the fuck up, though. Like, he gets she multiple breaks his limbs wrist. broken. Yeah, yeah he, he gets broken to shit. Um, and then I think the sequence ends with that uh, Chuck Norris spin kick. <laughs> yeah, the roundhouse. You need a roundhouse kick. Yeah, you need a roundhouse kick in there. That's the only acceptable finishing move. Um, and then 
she it's revealed that uh Motoko is nude uh, not fully nude but largely nude um, we don't get to see any details um, but she has this this like helmet and veil that it's covering her face that I guess allows her to be fully invisible um, I'm guessing the reason for her being nude is that it allows her to completely camouflage herself like head to toe um, but then we get a couple of lines of dialogue here where the guy is just like laying on the ground and his expression communicates nothing like he's, he's just blank and the phrase is thrown out there he's a puppet without a ghost um, and it's implied that this guy was being used um, like manipulated in some fashion like his, his mind and his, his body were being used by someone else independent of himself and so he doesn't seem to have any idea what's going on yeah um, it it kind of this is where it kind of felt like Blade Runner because he's like oh you, you think I'm going to talk he's the the guy on the ground is like, you think I'm going to talk to the cops I'm not going to say nothing and um, Batu is like talk like do you even know who you are like do you have any memories whatsoever and it's kind of a thing in Blade Runner they're like these androids think that they're real and they're like oh so you think you're real huh like why don't you tell me about your mother why don't you tell me the last the first thing you ever remember I, I was starting to see a little bit of a parallel there um, so yeah uh, who was this guy taken over by was he taken over by the puppet master I think it's supposed to be the puppet master. See, I thought he was kind of rogue. That's that's the impression that I got watching it. I'm like, oh, so they're this is playing into what they're looking for. But I thought maybe this guy was just rogue on his own. Mm. And be like the uh, opening of a James Bond movie. Where it's like, it may or may not factor into what happens later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess in anime you don't really have that luxury. Like, we have to draw well, an everything. An 83 minute long <laughs> Yeah. It's like, we don't really have that luxury in James Bond movies. Like, yeah, we got all kinds of time. <laughs> yeah, they do tend to run pretty long, at least the, the newer generation ones. Um, but yeah, then we cut to a raid. Um, so Mr. Aramaki, uh, the boss, uh, he's, like, camped out in, like, a patch of forest and he's surrounded by a bunch of cops and uh this the guy leading the raid i couldn't help but like think like holy shit he's got like the full-on don johnson garb going <laughs> like, like his outfit like i was like that's the guy leading the raid cool um and then we get another staple of a uh, mamoru oshi's directing style where we get a sequence where what's happening visually doesn't match what's happening on the audio level mm. uh, so basically we're looking at like observational footage um, before a raid of someone stepping off of a helicopter and meeting with I, I believe this is the Colonel uh, Malice who was spoken about at, towards the beginning of the film but basically it's like like perspective footage complete with time codes at the bottom of the screen so it looks like security cam footage um, while Bato is talking about something completely independent of this. So what, what your eyes are, what your visual information is taking in is completely independent of what your ears are taking in. So you have to really pay attention. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Bato t exposits that the, the guy that they apprehended, his nickname is Corgi, and uh, they're in the middle of interrogating uh, both him and the garbage man. Um, and the scene ends with the boss ordering the, like, go on the raid. 
And then we get a really cool scene here. That it's very brief, but it's very impactful. Of uh, The garbage man is in an interrogation room, and they're questioning him. And uh, he obviously was under the impression that he was taking steps to hack his wife. That was That's literally the only thing we know about him. Um, however, over the course of this interrogation, we learn that he doesn't have a wife, nor a daughter. And it needs to be said, uh, when he was talking to his friend in the garbage truck, he actually offered to show him a photo of his family. He was like, oh, you want to see my kid? She's adorable. And the guy said no. Um, and then uh, while he's in the interrogation room, uh, one of the officers speaking with him actually hands him the photo that he had on his person. And we, the viewer, see that it's a photo of himself walking his dog. Um, and he's not really saying anything here, but his, his he just starts crying. Like his face doesn't move, but just like tears start streaming down his face because um, basically this is a situation where a person was given false memories um, of a huge chunk of their life, uh, probably against their will. And so he's just like, his reality is just shooken up here. Um, and that's, that's another big theme is that, you know, memories and, and feelings can be manufactured um at the end of the day it's all electrical signals which is terrifying yeah Um, and then we get the diving scene kyle and there are some shots in here that i'm sure jumped out at you this is when they're on the boat yeah oh i was actually um the dialogue was what caught me during this part because this is a really Mm -hmm. dialogue heavy um yeah this is when it really started to sound a bit more matrix Matrix and Blade Runner esque when she's kind of talking about like um, I didn't write down any of the dialogue but just she just she just like launches into philosophy talk yeah she's literally (laughs) just like just talking about like the philosophy of being an android like am I the the real one does it matter is my brain being in this robotic body mean that I'm actually a person because isn't it to be human to have these um, these electrical signals in your brain telling you human thing like how to be a human doesn't that make me it's just it's kind of weird sounds like sounds like my lady friends when it gets to be too late in the evening and i have to go home yeah (laughs) it's like ah there's a reason we're just friends (laughs) (laughs) forgot about that (laughs) um but yeah this this scene um there's a couple of shots in here that are just absolutely gorgeous we're uh, Motoko is diving, and she has like an air tank on her back that also doubles as like thrusters, and then a mask. And we're launched into the scene by her just like sinking to like 50 feet below the the surface of the water, and then using the thrusters to push herself back up. And when she breaches the surface, we get a shot from her perspective of her body, like her limp form, and then she can see her own reflection. Uh, from the surface of the water like refracting and she merges with herself put a pin in that (laughs) and then she comes up to the surface of the water and again we get another beautiful perspective shot of some like water droplets on her mask um but the way the light is is bouncing off the water droplets inside there and we can see the sky reflected on her her mask which is bathed in orange by the way uh, <laughs> pollution <laughs> uh, it's it's just beautiful but yeah uh, Bato is on the boat and uh, at this point he does actually mention that hey uh, 
it's kind of curious that your hobby is diving, being as you have a cybernetic body that is made of heavy metals and will sink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's like, if your if your floating oper- apparatus fails, you're, that's it. You're done. Um, and it's funny because without replying, she just starts taking off her clothes again, and he turns away, and he's like, "Fuck!" This <laughs> like, is like, "I'm not about to get in an argument with a nude woman." That's just that's just rude. She on gets her n- boat, no less. <laughs> she gets naked about as many times as Melisandre does in Game of Thrones. I know you're not familiar, but the late the Red Woman, she mm. gets naked all the time. You could probably find uh, just a, a montage of all the times she gets naked in that show. <laughs> she have like ava green numbers or something uh no literally like almost every time her character's on screen she gets naked and she's a reoccurring oh. character yeah it's kind right. of her thing they explain it a little bit more why she does that every time but yeah um well, maybe she has a skin condition she chafes easily or something or like she gets rashes i can't tell Fuck you these cl- <laughs> these clothes <laughs> these clothes are really bothering me no 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 she's like, just... I'm just so hot all the time <laughs> Again, we're not shooting a porno. Put your clothes back on. There's no reason to be naked. Uh, uh, do we get the uh, the song with the with all the cityscapes here? Because I had I had some questions here. Yeah, um, I mean, I just wanted to touch for a second about the stuff that Motoko was talking about. But I mean, there's not much more to say than what you already did. But basically, it's Motoko is pondering like what it means to be human, and she laments the fact that uh, actually this was one of the biggest details I caught this this time around when I watched it was that um, she laments the fact that by nature the fact that she and Bato's bodies are cybernetic and in fact rented to them uh, they're kind of stuck in their roles because as as officers of, of section 9 they're, they need to have their bodies equipped in a certain fashion in order to do their jobs properly right mm. uh, it's equivalent to like going to college and like getting a certain degree or getting certain certifications but like body modifications so you can't possibly afford that so you get these modifications and then technically your actual physical body is owned by the by the organization that you work for so mm-hmm. if you want to resign you need to return it so then what? <laughs> yeah. Um, which I thought was really fascinating because I could totally see that happening in the future. Where she she even talks about the nature of memory and and the fact that uh, certain memories that she and Bato have, uh, you know, for instance, could be very useful to investigations or could be good for record keeping or something. Uh, are they going to repossess those too? And if you if you factor that in, it becomes an argument of like how human am i or am i just like a tool or a computer um but yeah uh during the course of their conversation which you can tell bato is not terribly enthused about having (laughs) um uh, a voice speaks to both of them directly into their heads um, and the quote is uh, for now we see through a glass darkly and it's it's my understanding that this was the puppet master basically speaking to both of them somehow via remote um, but yeah, then we get the montage, uh, which you said you wanted to talk about. Yeah, well, the the song kicks in, and my su- I had to have the subtitles on. Uh, cause it was hard to hear on my TV. Uh, the subtitles are like women singing in foreign language. I like how just <laughs> how how we're just bass we're getting here. Like yeah, 
just just keep it simple. Uh, yeah, the cityscape. So um, I like this this little montage. It's nice. I wasn't really expecting it. It kind of like I'm like, oh okay. So this is kind of like what you'd see in a movie. Um, yeah. But she keeps. I was confused because she keeps seeing herself in other places and like in these windows as she's like driving through. Yeah. Um, so, again, another staple of Mamoru Oshii's directing style. Um, he's very big on musical interludes, sequence, very long sequences where no words are spoken. It's just music and images, and more often than not, they're very effective. Like you definitely get something out of them. Um, in this case, yeah, uh, we get to see like Hong Kong waterways, <laughs> Japanese waterways, but rendered to look like Hong Kong. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, she keeps seeing herself around town, and uh, I think she's like in a f- she's on a ferry, and then she sees herself in an office building, looking down at herself. And I kind of interpret this to be again part of that theme of like, is she just a vessel, or is she an actual distinct being? Because her physical form, like seeing her physical form elsewhere, she's a manufactured product. There is actually a fairly high likelihood that she would see herself, like, as like another cyborg or something. Like she could pass someone who looks exactly like her on the street. In fact, I mean, you see that sometimes with like plastic surgery and stuff, where like certain surgeons have a signature style, and you, if you went to the same guy, there's a good chance you'll end up looking like someone who who came from the same doctor or something. Wasn't that what happens in 2049? Later in 2049, like. Uh... Maybe it's not 249, but he's got that girlfriend, but it's like, like he's got the girlfriend and she's like super special. She's like, a, not even a, a cyborg. She's like a, a computer program. Yeah, hologram. Hologram. And then yeah. like, then there, he kind of walks by and he sees that giant hologram of her. Like he sees like, I don't know, everybody gets these. Like it's not, you're not special. Like it's not special for you. Like a lots of people have these. Well, I, I mean, there's misremembering. No, you're you're right. Um, and he's continually purchasing upgrades to make her more complete as yeah. a as a consciousness. I guess. I mean, God, she's never sad. she never becomes a consciousness, as far as I understand. But like, she becomes closer and closer and closer to it. And then they have that wonky scene where she projects herself onto the other gal who's now going to be in that Terminator movie, who has the best agent in Hollywood, by the way. That gal, I don't know her name, but holy shit, she gets some roles, man. <laughs> oh, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. She plays the, the hooker. The hooker. 249. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very prestigious role. <laughs> I don't know. She's going to be in the new Terminator movie. I don't think her agent's that well, great. But she was in, like, The Martian before Blade Runner 2049. So, like, she's getting big roles. Hmm. Somebody has confidence in her. There's a lot of people in The Martian. But, the, you know, what's weird is there's, like, a lot of noteworthy, like, uh, Donald, not yeah, Donald Glover, uh, Jeff Daniels, uh, somebody else pops up in. There. Is Jess, Jessica Chastain, uh, or is it Bryce Dallas Howard, or is it neither one of them? Uh, it I think is it's Chastain. It's Chastain because she's also an Interstellar. But most of that movie is just Matt Damon, and you forget that like like Kristen Wiig is in there. Like no, it has a gigantic cast. But yeah, I really like Jeff Daniels in that movie. Um, I just like Jeff Daniels to be honest. I always have. It's so weird. I saw fucking Fly Away Home in the theater. 
I was I, Anna Paquin. So I, I was like, Anna Paquin popped into my head the other day because I, I think I was listening to a podcast about uh, X Men or something, and she she came up. But she had a moment where she would just pop up in the weirdest places. Like she's in, she's all that. Like she's like the yeah, the sister. Yeah. She's the older sister. Yeah. And she pops up in Almost Famous. It's just one of like with uh, uh, we can never remember her name. Bad Lieutenant. Um, uh, Vicky Valancourt. Like. She's in that in the group of <laughs> band aids. She's one of the band aids. I'm like, that's fucking Anna Paquin. She's just there. Like, huh. maybe, maybe because she was a big, I, I, she was a real big. She won an Oscar when she was like what, like eight or nine. Like she was really young. She best supporting. Very young, probably like eleven or something. Maybe that's why it's because she was a big deal like straight out the gate, and then she just like pops up as these tertiary tertiary characters, and I'm like, oh shit, Anna Paquin's there. Huh. Yeah, it's just, it just mean- weird. I wasn't aware of that, and the only one I knew for sure was she's all that. And she pops up in Almost Famous. Sorry, derailed oh. us there. Oh, well, it's no big deal. We're just talking about a musical interlude. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's how I interpret that. Sorry, that she's she's seeing herself around town because she's questioning, she's questioning her individuality, basically. It was hard for me to pay attention to the story. Because I was trying to take. I I feel like I should have watched this movie twice. You know. Because I'm more or less paying attention to the the animation, and I'm paying attention to the backgrounds and stuff like that. What? That I, I was kind of losing the story a little bit, but that that happens. This director, Kyle, I can't emphasize enough. Um, I love his style, but almost every story of, of his I've ever been exposed to, I. I don't think I've ever fully understood. Well, I, um, because it's so much. So much of the beauty of his his work is look and feel. Mm-hmm. Um, more and they're very dialogue heavy, but it's always delivered in that way where it's like we're not going to stop to actually tell it to you. We're not going to stop to explain it to you. If you figure it out along the way, great. But these characters are living their own lives, and it's up to you to keep pace. Mm-hmm. And um, so if you if you like this. Um, I would definitely recommend watching some of his other stuff because he really is a unique voice in in animation or live action. And you know that I like visually enticing movies, and I'll often ignore narrative just to focus on the visuals. I didn't mean to on this; it just kind of happened that way. One of the first uh, one of the first anime I was ever talking to you about um, was Pat Labor. Um, it's, it's a it's a series of like TV shows and movies that it's like the brainchild of of Mamoru Oshii. Um, there's a trilogy of movies that I really wanted you to watch like when, when we first started talking about movies and stuff because it, to me it just seemed like a perfect fit. The reason why I haven't had you watch them though is because it's a trilogy and it's a mm. lot. Whereas Ghost in the Shell or something, it's it's an 83 minute movie. I think you can stomach it. It's not, not a huge investment up front. No. But the Pat Labor movies... Um, I think are my favorite of anything, uh, anything of his I've seen. Um, but yeah, this montage, um, if you if you want to take like a, a five minute break to just see some beautiful images and hear some really trippy music, uh, maybe look it up on the YouTube because it's yeah. it's gorgeous. Um, and then we cut to a blonde woman on the freeway, and she's Dad. naked. <laughs> I thought this was a real T one thousand moment because uh, she's blonde and she just like kind of pops up and there's a there's a truck coming basically, 
And I'm like, oh shit. I'm like, oh no, T1000. Um, and then <laughs> I think I didn't realize that the truck driver hit her because we almost immediately get to the scene where she's kind of mangled and the and she's um, I guess in the police station, more or less the police yeah, station I mean, laboratory. This isn't the first time this happens in this movie where something very important happens off screen, and I don't know. It's a it's a directorial choice. I, I don't know how I feel about it, but it's effective. I guess well, it's, it's economical, to be honest. This is where live action trumps the the where he's using live action to tell the story through animation. Where this would be very impactful and. In a real movie, like I'm not in a real movie, sorry, a uh, live action movie, <laughs> where you have, if you were to have the same scene, Daryl Hannah pops up, disheveled, pale, naked, and then you just see her, like you just see lights on her, and then you just see her right in front of a truck. You can put together that she got hit, and then if you just cut to, uh, uh, and then you go quietly to the slab where she's laying, you can put it together pretty quick. Her like her mangled robot body, like. Oh, she got hit by the car, and now they're kind of trying to figure out where she came from. It mm-hmm. it's it doesn't really make sense here because it just it that jump cut isn't as effective here is all. I got you. Um, but yeah, section nine recovered this this blonde body. Uh, it's a cyborg body, by the way. Um, and holy <laughs> in shit, case you didn't know, they, <laughs> yeah. Um, when they when they uh, put a current through it, when they try to activate it, oof. Um, the animation here is spectacular, yes. but it's also unnerving uh, because it, this is this is a a view that we get of the human body that is very few people have actually seen what this looks like. Um, I'm gonna say that live actions, um, Return of the Living Dead. Do you remember? You know what scene I'm talking about in Return of the Living yes. Dead? Yes. Uh, it kind of it reminds me a little bit of that effect where it's like, oh, whoa, that's kind of. That's a little unnerving there, but yeah, this is we were talking about like jiggling, and mm-hmm. how physics. <laughs> this is physics. This is a very classy. Like it's, this is like the, one of the classiest um, uses of nudity like ever. Is that she's naked? What's left of what's left of her? Uh, her both of her arms are missing, and they reactivate her, and she she twitches and like. Almost like it's not even like like a seizure. I don't even know how to describe it. Um, well, it's it's an example of what happens when you put a current through a, like something that's dead, basically. Yeah. Like th- this is why I say this this is unnerving because um, the human body, when it's conscious, when it's alive, it 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 fights against gravity, basically. Like yeah. there's a certain there's a certain stance it takes. There's a certain form it takes. The way we move is very controlled in some instances this is an example of an entirely limp body being like convulsing against its will yeah and i don't know if they like had some sort of mannequins or like oh. or cadavers or something that they're rolling around but that's the, best, the that's the only way that you can learn the physics of that really the, i think if you were to take um somebody getting the pads the like, defibrillator defibrillator yeah i think that would be um a good way to think about it because that like pushes the yeah. body in an unnatural way so maybe if you just had that on a loop like we just have to get that jiggle going like get the body to move like that to where it's that's what it kind of feels like is a defibrillator 
doing it con- like several times back yeah. to back, which would yeah. I don't think would bring you back to life if you tried to do it to somebody. No, I think that would double kill you. <laughs> double kill. That's a double tap. <laughs> That's a Mozambique drill with uh, some electrical pads. Um, but yeah, it's it's very creepy. Um, it doesn't help that her eyes are wide open the whole time, and it's very it's exceedingly well animated. Um, but yeah, Moltoko comes in. And everybody kind of is huffy with her because she's late. And uh, the boss storms out of the room. He's like, it's like you know, you could give us a call if you're going to be late. So apparently she's really fucking late. <laughs> yeah. um, as it so happens, uh, this cyborg body, um, Bato says, like, you're late, so I'll explain everything that we already know uh, so the audience can catch up. <laughs> um, that's, that's useful. Okay. Yeah, it is. It, it works because it sets a tone. And it, it effectively communicates what needs to be communicated. But um, he explains to her that uh, a factory came to life on its own. So a, a factory that was not operating that at that moment just sprung to life and made a, and manufactured a cyborg body. It escaped, and here we are. Um, and there's a lot of repetition of it being a Megatech body, uh, Megatech being the company that manufactured it. And apparently their security is, like, highest, like, top top men uh so it's it's very strange that this would happen that not only would the body be made by a factory without anyone knowing but that it would escape um and there's a lot of discussion here about what to do with the body and one of the doctors that they have on staff at section nine is he's very he's very flip about dissecting the cyborg body Uh, he's just like yeah whatever (laughs) so like you can tell that he's used to doing this um so he's not thinking of it as an organism or a or a, a person or anything living really it's just meat um and then bato throws out there that uh he's heard of cyborgs having souls by the way and nobody seems to really pay much mind to that but put a pin in that i guess well <laughs> is this where he says that this this robot had a ghost in its um in its brain basically mm-hmm. um i don't know how, how I don't know why I like this, but when we we have a movie title that we don't say in the movie, but we get really close to, like The Silence of the Lambs. Like, we know where that title comes from. It comes from Jodie Foster's story about the lambs screaming, and it's called The Silence of the Lambs, and it has significance to the story. Uh, Obviously, most titles do, but this one, it's like, he mentioned, uh, Bato mentions to the major, uh, he's like, you got something, something up with your shell, and he's talking about the... Um, I guess where her brain rests, they call the head the shell. And in this mm-hmm. case, he's like, she's got a ghost in her brain, but we have to kind of equate the two, like, oh, there's a ghost in the shell. Uh, <laughs> I just thought, I was sitting here, like, I kind of like, I don't know why I like that. Just, we don't, I don't like it when they explicitly stay, say the movie's name, the title name in the movie. It, it's kind of corny, really. Well, see, I, ins- I insist if you are going to say the name of your movie, you need to look directly, directly at the, the camera. camera. <laughs> yeah, you need yeah. to look directly into the camera and say it. The Hot Tub Time Machine does it. He literally does it. Yeah, like I've some seen kind the trailer. Hot Tub Time Machine. He hot Tub Time Machine. He <laughs> looks at the camera like, fuck, it's stupid. Well, not to completely derail us, but one of my favorite instances of that was uh, from Channel 101. That would be the short internet film website that was founded by Dan Harmon. Uh, way back when I was in high school, um, there was a show called Dohar Lord of Beasts, and uh, <laughs> at the conclusion of the first episode, um, 
there's this village chief that like hops into the frame and he's and dohar just saved the day so he's like three cheers for dohar and then he looks directly into the camera lord of beasts <laughs> episode one <laughs> that's love perfect. dan Harmon. love dan Harmon. yeah i don't think he had anything to do with that episode or that show but that website was his baby and i will forever thank him for that it's kind of um, like funny J- you mentioned is like he's kind of like Judd Apatow, Judd Apatow, where you see his name and if his name's on it, like okay, I'll probably like this. This. I mean, they did that with Quentin Tarantino and uh, no. what's his face, Robert uh, Rodriguez. Ba- Robert Rodriguez also, and uh, the Bear Jew. Oh, um, Eli. Yeah, Eli Roth. They did that with him too, where they throw all three of their names all over movies that they had very little to do with. Like, my favorite example is uh, Tom Young Gung, the Tony Jaa movie. When they brought that over to the States and retitled it The Protector, Quentin Tarantino's name was all over that. And mm-hmm. all he ha- all he did was pay for it to come here. Yeah, he, and did he-, nothing to- he did nothing to make it. He just paid to have it brought here. I don't trust anything with Quentin Tarantino's... Where it's like, Quentin Tarantino presents are brought to you by Quentin Tarantino. Like, I'd rather just watch one of his movies. Well, Eli the funniest, Ro- the funniest one these days is from the producers of... <laughs> you yeah. see that so often nowadays? It was like, yeah. from the people who paid to make that thing you liked. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, speaking the- of the title, um, actually, the original Japanese title for this isn't Ghost in the Shell. It's oh, interesting. Kokaku Kidotai. Oh, that makes more sense. <laughs> Mobile Armored Riot Police, which has nothing to do with anything from a thematic standpoint. So I think that's a good change, actually. It's an excellent ghost, change, actually. Yeah, the Ghost in the Shell brand is very strong. That's a striking title. Uh, ghost in the Machine, however, uh, that didn't go anywhere. Although I think that movie's hilarious. So, at this point, uh, Bato does mention, um, by the way, uh, the majority of uh, Section 9 employees actually have Megatech bodies. Uh, so we're starting to play around in that territory of like individuality, where it's like this just random body that some factory pooped out is actually like the same as as most of your your comrades and fellow employees which is kind of a creepy thought um but yeah there's a lot of terminology that gets thrown out here um diving and swimming for instance uh so diving would be essentially intruding on someone else's consciousness like entering their consciousness via like electronic communication of some sort and swimming uh, Bato refers to the ghost that's inhabiting the cyborg body as essentially being trapped in there. So it, it's stuck in the robot brain. It's unable to it's unable to jump from place to place. Yeah. Um, and then he also throws something out there that was kind of interesting. That again, this was something I only caught this time, where uh, he ruminates on the fact that so me and the major have cyborg brains and they require regular maintenance and that that jerk fuck doctor who was just in there is the guy who's working on them every every month or whatever yeah who's doing my oil oil changes essentially like are those people trustworthy yeah <laughs> no kidding they're regularly fucking around in my brain so you can tell that there's like a sensation of doubt there's some doubt in the air i would yeah um, i would actually yeah. feel less comfortable as a cyborg a cyborg brain that works like a human brain. Somebody who's I'd like this person's less capable than I am to do maintenance on my brain. It should be another <laughs> cyborg who doesn't get sleepy working on my brain, not this. Well, fuck. yeah, actually, 
actually Aramaki it responds to him and says like Bato's questioning him and Aramaki is honest and says like actually pretty much all the doctors we have here are straight up human they don't have cybernetic implants it's like isn't that a concern <laughs> like, like, is, I mean they, aren't you are limit- they that qualified I mean, if you have a human, if you have somebody who's human working on the, the cyborg, isn't it, isn't, aren't you only as strong as your weakest link? Are, I mean, are you only creating cyborgs that are only as smart or as only, only as capable as the human brain? Like, mm-hmm. limiting them. No, actually, the, the products you're making are far superior to you, which is kind of the, one of the themes of Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. The, and Alien Covenant and Prometheus, all that stuff. And all sci-fi. that Scott stuff. Sci-fi. <laughs> and sci-fi in general. Sci-fi in general. I still, I still need to see Transcendence because I've heard that oh, movie's God. awful. It's, it's mind blowing it. how bad it is. It's so. I know, but stupid. I, I want to see it because of that. <laughs> yeah, you go for it, bro. <laughs> I'm not paying for it. <laughs> it's got our. If, it's, uh, free, if it, it's free, I'll watch it. it. It's got our lady friend from the town that we're both big fan of. Uh, oh. I can't think oh. of her name. You know who I'm talking about, though. I do. Uh, shoot. What's her name? I can't think of her name. It. I always get it wrong because her name is like Rebecca, but then I want to put Black as the last name. I want to say it's, it's it's not Rebecca Black. <laughs> when I hear Rebecca, I I think De Mornay. Well, late eighties, early nineties, Rebecca De Mornay. Not contemporary. But uh, yeah, she she is quite fun. Yeah, I like um, her. Yeah, she she works for me. And in fact, God damn it, Kyle! You gave me another excuse to watch that horseshit movie. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, Motoko uh, mentions while they're in the elevator um, another choice line that's very important. Uh, maybe there never was a real me in the first place. So she's going down Goth Girl Avenue, mm-hmm. and Bato's doing the the guy thing where it's like, oh no, no, uh, that can't be true. Whatever, <laughs> yeah. whatever, whatever. <laughs> whatever. Um, we got a really cool scene here. Um, that I don't know if you have any familiarity with the Metal Gear uh, games. I'm familiar with getting shot in the head uh, at the beginning of whichever was the first iteration on the PlayStation, because uh, I couldn't get past that first part. I'd play it at my cousin's. Oh, okay. Well, that's actually the game I'm talking about. Um, okay. But it happens very late in the game. Um, so Togusa is in the garage, and I, he gets past when he's stepping out of the elevator by two two guys in fancy suits one of whom is a white guy so you know he's suspicious right away yeah <laughs> um so he sees two bougie cars in the garage and him being a cop does some clever deduction here where he's like so there were two guys in suits why do we have two fucking limos in the garage like they don't seem like guys who would drive themselves there's got to be more to their party mm-hmm so he goes through a, a number of steps here. Um, he re- he asks like the the building computer to review the elevator footage of those two gentlemen stepping on the elevator. And then he doesn't see anything suspicious there, although he does note that the door takes like three seconds longer to close than it should. And then he also asks the computer to review like the pressure pressure indication, like how much weight this elevator was carrying, and it's astronomically high. So him being not an idiot deduces that there were probably there were either cyborgs or there were more than two people in that elevator. Well, there are definitely more than two, but yeah, yeah. Um, and this uh, this sequence was borrowed in a 
Metal Gear Solid, there's a really great scene where you're you're in the middle of a radio chat with your buddy, and uh, it actually gets interrupted by the fact that he uh, he notices that the elevator you're riding, like the the overweight limit uh, alarm, goes off on it when you step onto it. Yeah, and it's it's this really cool suspenseful sequence where it's like, oh my god, there's a bunch of people with cloaking devices in there with you. You gotta fight them, <laughs> and it's. It sounds cooler than it is, but it's still cool. Um, then uh, those two gentlemen uh, enter the chamber where the cyborg body is being kept. And we get this really cool scene where uh, the white guy, his hands explode open and turn into like 20 fingers on each hand. It goes to each finger sprouts uh, like 10 fingers. And then those ten fingers sprout like five fingers, and then they all start typing. It's pretty. If you've incredible. ever seen like the one of the trippy scenes in a uh, Doctor Strange, uh, with the hands, uh, that's what it looks like. But basically, uh, Doctor Willis here, the white guy, uh, has cyborg hands, and he can type insanely fast. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty fucking cool to look at. Um, but it's over the course of this conversation in the room with the cyborg body that we learned that the puppet master is confirmed to be confined within this cybernetic body. And uh, Section 6 wants the collar, uh, despite the body being housed at Section 9. Uh, like we said at the very beginning of the movie, these two organizations are in conflict with each other. Um, and through some sort of shenanigans, um, it's not entirely clear really, but we, basically we learned that Section 6 somehow forced the puppet master into this this particular cyborg brain and body uh in order to isolate them because otherwise they're basically just living on the internet and were free to navigate wherever they wanted so it's not entirely clear how this happened but it happened so deal with it <laughs> and then we get uh, a conversation with the puppet master do you recall some of the the details that are traded here no but i did like the little subtlety um while he's typing uh, you could. It's clear that um, the cyborg is uh, inanimate right now. It's not. It's not on. It's not moving. And as he's typing, um, you don't even see it like click on, but you see her eyes move. Mm. It's kind of like a little horror movie thing. Like it's just. It's just really subtle. I'm like, oh, that's nice. I'm like, okay, so it's on. Um, I caught the name Project Two Five Zero One. Uh, there's the name of this, um, I guess what he's naming the cyborg or whatever. Um, <laughs> I didn't catch everything. What, what, what all said here? Well, it's a whole lot. So it's I'm, a, I'm I was going to say, there's a lot of dialogue. When yeah, it, there's it, a lot of dialogue in this movie. We're probably not doing a good job of summarizing, but, but I'll try. Um, I probably missed a few things, but basically he declares himself an autonomous life form. Mm -hmm. uh, he says... Basically, I'm, I may be digital, like exclusively digital at this point, um, but then he throws back at the gentleman in the room that uh, your DNA as biological beings is how your life propagates. And an external hard drive in a computer is very similar to that in terms of how digital information works, where we now have the capacity to transport just electronic information from yeah. place to place um, at will. So he says, despite I'm not biological in nature, he exists, he has memories, he has feelings, and he wants political asylum. <laughs> um, and yeah, he says that I, my name is Project uh, 
2501 and I am a life form that was born in the sea of information. So basically he's a computer program that gained sentience. How? So he <laughs> That's that's the question. Um, there's no answer to it, but somehow it happened. No, I said Hal, like Hal from 2001. Oh, Hal. Yeah, he, um, he developed a sense of self and has self-preservation. He's Skynet. Instilled in him. Yeah, so much like Hal, who, you know, felt the need to defend himself, this is kind of where the puppet master's at. He's, many of the actions he's taking were to prevent himself from being lost or erased because mm-hmm. that's, that's what life does. Um, and then some explosions go off. Uh, oh, by the way, um, the Puppet Master's speaking voice is distinctly male, um, despite the body being female. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, put a pin in that. <laughs> um, so explosions go off, um, and some well-equipped and cloaked people snatch the Puppet Master, um, the body, that is. Yeah. And, uh, Tog- Togusa actually tries to stop them. He fails. Uh, good job. Good, good try, but doesn't quite work out. Uh, his his gun does nothing to their car, um, but he shoots a tracker onto their car. Uh, and so now our heroes are giving chase. And Motoko contacts Mr. Aramaki, uh, and they go back and forth kind of untying this conspiracy. And she believes that Section 6 is responsible for the kidnapping, um, largely because of the equipment that they have. Because Togusa explained to her that, hey, these guys have, like, fucking cloaking gear on them. <laughs> uh, which is not something that your average criminal or whatever would be able to get a hold of. So she thinks that uh, the conflict between their two organizations has escalated in some fashion. Um, and then the... <laughs> did, did you notice the, uh, the cyborg ladies in the command center uh, with the old man? Mm-mm. Okay, so the boss... Uh, Mr. Aramaki, uh, on a couple of occasions, has this command center he goes to, and it's populated with nothing but cyborg hotties. <laughs> it's a bunch of, like, it's interesting, because the first time we see them, there's like three of them, and they're just a bunch of young women uh, dressed in, like, office attire, sitting at computer consoles with, like, like headsets on. And they're just typing away and, and doing whatever he says. It's like a Bourne movie where the FBI directors shouting and people type stuff and then spying happens. Um, this time though, uh, we get a closer look and we see that they're basically just like robot shells. So this is something I could see happening where you have like a friendly human exterior to something that's essentially like a computer. Yeah. It's not a person so much as it is just a tool. So it, it performs a task that would normally be carried out by a person, but he's essentially directing traffic, and they just do whatever they're told. And we notice here um, from a couple of the close-ups, they don't blink. <laughs> so they may have cute girl faces, but uh, I wouldn't call them attractive. No. <laughs> it's, like, it's actually kind of repulsive and terrifying. Um, but yeah, Dr. Willis and uh, Nakamura from uh, section six they have a chat in their car while they're driving away from section nine after the explosions and stuff and uh the main thing main piece of information we learned from this conversation is that uh the kidnappers who have the puppet master body are changing vehicles um and then we get a musical interlude with motoko who is in a chopper and Bato and Togusa in their cars, separate from each other, all trying to track down this this vehicle carrying the cyborg body, and like the military cordoning off an area, and uh, the hotties typing away with their cyborg hands, 
Um, and is this where the uh, the shot that you wanted to ask me about happens? Like in the city? No, the one I was asking you about was the van one, about how they did the, the, the gunshots into the van. Oh, okay. Because I thought you were talking about uh, a shot that I noticed where it's, uh, the, it's the chopper circling a skyscraper that the way it's lit uh, makes me think it was maybe a CGI building. Um, not positive, but it, it reminded me of like early CGI and animation. It is possible. I think I know which one you're talking about. I, I just fig- figured since you said that there, that there is CGI that pops up. I just mm-hmm. assumed that, yeah. Mm. Um, so then we get an awkward little sequence. that It's informative, but com- kind of comes out of fucking nowhere. Uh, where, where the guy with the beard, who was with Bato earlier in the movie, um, he contacts Mr. Aramaki, and he explains to him that uh, a gentleman by the name of Mizuho Daita... Uh, a programmer uh, that was involved in the the opening assassination uh, may have been involved in the creation of the puppet master. Um, So this is where I guess we're supposed to be told that uh, the opening sequence does tie into the puppet master conspiracy thing. Mm. Um, And Beard Man surmises that the puppet master of the program that was created to influence diplomats that somehow gained sentience. And uh, he goes (laughs) <laughs> he just goes back into the internet and it's actually kind of this cool thing where he like puts on like what looks like almost like a diving bell or something it's like a big harness and that's how he internets <laughs> um and then we get uh, the roadblock scene there's some good violence here kyle basically um a couple of people that we believe are the kidnappers are in the same car that they escaped from section nine in and then uh this roadblock pops up and they crash into it, and Bato just, like, runs up to their car. And holy shit, he tears this one guy's chest wide open and puts a gun to the other one's head. So he's not fucking around. <laughs> like, he's judge-dreading these guys, basically. But, yeah, he tears the one guy's chest open. The other guy, apparently, they apprehend. Um, but, obviously, um, we, the audience, are aware that they no longer have the cyborg body. It was handed off to a different vehicle. So he's... Bato's a little frustrated. Um, and then we get, like, <clears throat> one of the cooler scenes in the movie. Like, one of the more just, like, universally awesome moments in the whole fucking thing. Uh, Motoko catches up to the other car that actually does have the kidnappers and the uh, the cyborg body in it. And it's at an old, like, flooded metro station. Mm-hmm. And she knows something's up. So she jumps out of the chopper, which she can do because she has a cybernetic body. And she tells the chopper, like, okay, some shit's about to go down, but I want you to get out of here because uh, it might be bad. Um, and she infiltrates the, the flooded metro station. <laughs> and there is a cloaked tank. <laughs> yeah. There's a camouflaged tank standing over the vehicle. Uh, and it starts shooting at her with essentially miniguns yeah, um this felt kind of like uh like robocop here a little ed 209 ish yeah. yeah um but in response to this uh she asked the chopper to shoot out the glass covering of the metro station so like the ceiling uh and all the glass fragments fall down onto the tank thereby revealing it like removing its its camouflage um and then the chopper just kind of like leaves a little bit <laughs> so uh she commits to fighting the tank. Yeah. 
um, her her logic here is that she is desperate to quote unquote dive into the puppet master so she wants to hook up her brain to the puppet master brain so she can communicate with it directly um, and this is going to be her only chance uh, because more than likely the body's going to be taken away or destroyed and no one else will ever no one on her level will get an opportunity to speak with this thing because yeah. it'll become a it'll become a higher up issue this um, the sequence yeah, just just the nature of her committing to fighting this tank like the the combination of the music and the fact that she's like this this slim form that basically has a suitcase with an assault rifle in it uh and it's like you're gonna fight that (laughs) it's Uh, kind of cool something about this reminded me of the uh batman the animated series um there's a lot of shadows in here um a little bit of the color palette like it's it's really dark um yeah this is this is a cool sequence and i think she tries to like shoot into the top of the tank like she she drops trow again and like uh jumps up on top oh yeah i forgot about the the dude with the glasses that just gets fucking (laughs) just obliterated Um, grenaded yeah yeah but she jumps on top of the tank and the little eyes like oh where where, where's she at and she comes into frame and uh this is where she she hulks more or less uh i don't know why um I don't know why her body changes though. That's the oh. thing. Well, I mean, it's so the the choreography of the sequence is is very precise. And it's very elegant actually because it, it's because it's so precise. It's actually very restrained. Basically, she's running from cover to cover. Her her rifle is too it doesn't have enough penetrative power to damage this tank. So she's just shooting at it more to like as a distraction and and moving from cover to cover. She closes distance. Uh, she lops grenades at it, mostly to kill the guy who's underneath it. Yeah. Um. And then she drops trowel because she has that thermal optic camouflage. Yeah. As we've seen before, she does that. Um. So she uses that to close distance, and I think her rifle actually breaks down. Like the barrel melts basically. Because mm-hmm. the ammunition she's using is too much for it to handle, or something, much like a, a real life like machine gun. Um, and so, yeah, she jumps on top of it and she hulks out. And it's my understanding that, like, our bodies produce like fatigue toxins, and they have limits. Like, we have limits to how much we can function in certain regards. Mm-hmm. If your body was entirely artificial and was being driven by a computer or something. If you commanded it to exert itself to a degree far greater than it was capable of sustaining, if it doesn't have those barriers preventing it from pushing those limits, it just will go. Yeah. So it was my understanding that like her her musculature and like the servos or whatever working her limbs, she just told them like go for it. So it was just kind of like she put forth more power than than her body could sustain, which caused her to destroy herself. Yeah. Which is something a human can't really do unless they're particularly driven. But with her, again, the the, the animation here is really incredible because it looks like, you can tell she's exerting herself, but at the same time you can tell that she doesn't it doesn't bother her. It's like okay, my my limbs popped off. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh well, I tried. Um, but yeah, the the there's some truly creep again that really creepy physics animation happens here where we get to see her her limp body just kind of like fall off of the tank yeah that was pretty it's like that 
it's it's really well animated um and then uh the tank reaches forward and tries to crush her head and more creepy imagery uh, it crushes her helmet like that had the veil for her camouflage and she's just kind of staring straight ahead letting this happen because her limbs are gone yeah but her her face communicates no sensation of fear or pain Uh, which again i guess if you have a mechanical body and a mechanical brain of some sort yeah maybe maybe she was incapable of expressing anything because i don't think her face moves anymore for the rest of the movie Mm-mm. um but deus ex giant gun yeah. <laughs> um, bato shows up with a giant gun that's probably as big as he is and he shoots the fuck out of this tank and k- kills the pilot and then it releases her mm-hmm. um and then Motoko, with her body uh, completely broken, she orders Bato to hook her up to the Puppet Master. Uh, then cut to some choppers incoming. We get to see some supremely awesome military tech. Uh, some choppers that sprout wings, which apparently is a thing that we actually are trying to do right now. I forget the term, but it's it has something to do with um, design mechanics emulating uh, biological mechanics. So they actually are trying to develop planes now that have, like, feather-shaped wings. Okay. Um, And that's what these choppers have. And then we get to hear some technical jargon being spoken back and forth between the people in these choppers. And it has to do with, uh, like, snipers uh, suspending their cardiovascular functions and uh, synchronizing with with the movement of the vehicle they're in in order to get, like, 100% precise aim. It's like, yep probably gonna get that at some point (laughs) it's like snipers who don't breathe and have move and have like perfect motion control in their limbs it's like yep we're gonna get that someday um but this is one of the most uh the scene like typifies mamoru oshi in so many ways but it's also very frustrating because it's like 10 minutes long and it's just two dead bodies talking to each other without moving yeah, I it's, I didn't know what was happening. I was just exactly. Like, okay. it, it's uh, it's a lot, and I don't know how much I got out of it, but I know when I was very young, this scene was very frustrating. This would usually be where I would turn off the movie. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was partially checked out at this point. I'm like, all right, I got the gist. Um, they're talking to each other, and she probably figures it out. Yeah, basically, the Bato hooks up the two of them. He explain, the Puppet Master explains that he was a program been tasked with manipulating the ghosts of individuals for the benefit of specific persons and organizations meaning exploited i uh, somehow gained awareness uh, and when his creators learned of this they forced him into a body so he could no longer just hang out on the internet poor guy yeah. um, puppet master explains that he cannot die nor reproduce um and motoko actually counters like but you can make a copy yourself, right? And Puppet Master replies, like, well, you know, a copy does not offer the po- possibility of individuality, which is, of course, the concept that Motoko's been grappling with since the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and she levels with him, and she's like, oh, you, you want the variety required to combat extinction, like the biological variety. Um, and basically it's a very long conversation but at the end of the day he wants to merge with motoko um, because they both have something that the other one does not and it's puppet master's understanding that by becoming one thing they will become something entirely distinct like something 
that's neither one of them, but it's just unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, which obviously individuality was something that she was desiring or, or questioning, and that would grant her that. So, of course, you know her ears perk up. Yeah. <laughs> um, then uh, I think the puppet master says, "After the merging, you will bear my offspring to the net itself." Uh, which <laughs> I couldn't help but think of the fucking lawnmower man. Um, I don't know if you've seen that. Kyle. No, I haven't seen that one. Fuck. You might have to watch the lawnmower, man. Mm. It's not good. <laughs> I don't know what it is about Jeff Fahey, but he he has a lot of shit movies under his belt. But for some reason, I get a lot of enjoyment out of watching them. I've heard about Lawnmower Man. I mean, you you could you couldn't escape it in the mid '90s because you know CGI was the thing, mm. and virtual reality. You couldn't go to a fucking shopping mall without seeing like one of those like things that you stand on and you put on the helmet mm-hmm. like virtual reality was a big thing <laughs> but, but it's a terrible movie i get some level of enjoyment from it so i might force you to watch that yeah, okay um and then basically this whole conversation ends with uh the snipers from the chopper blowing both motoko and and the puppet master body to bits um, bato loses an arm trying to trying to block the path of the bullet by the way um and there's a like motoko has like a divine vision of some sort just before her head gets caved in by a bullet um i don't know what the i don't know what we're supposed to get out of that but it was kind of cool looking um and then we get to the end of the movie um and do you recall what happened here she comes back as a little girl is that am i mistaken yeah 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 motoko um we get a very cinematic shot, like passing through a study. Motoko is like, well, it's not Motoko actually. It's it's a child in mm-hmm. like a gothic dress of some sort, sitting with what looks like IVs hooked up to them, just eyes open, not blinking, and it it looks like Motoko, like the face does, and it has a similar haircut. And uh, as it so happens, twenty hours have passed, and Bato somehow transferred Motoko's consciousness into this body and she's like what the fuck <laughs> like, why would you put me in a little kid's body and he's like well you know I had to act fast this is what i got <laughs> yeah. so it's a little weird but um she's speaking in a child's voice but um halfway through the conversation i noticed the change back to her original voice so i don't know if like she toggled some <laughs> some some settings in her cyborg brain or whatever but it was kind of interesting um but yeah, we learned that basically uh, the war between Section 6 and Section 9 ended in a draw, obviously. like It seemed pretty obvious that nothing was going to happen there. It was, it's just a forever stalemate kind of situation. Um, and yeah, apparently this, this merging was complete. So the Puppet Master and Motoko are in, inhabiting the same consciousness. They're one and the same. Um, and she opts to leave. She's like, yep, I'm just going to leave. going to go do my thing. going to become a person. Um, and she tells Bato that, like, let's have a password, uh, 2501. Like, whenever we meet again, just keep keep your ears open for that for that number combination. Uh, because as we're learning with this, well, as we've learned in this world, uh, physical form doesn't have that much to do with actual personhood. Mm-hmm. So she could... She <laughs> She could show up looking like Wilford Brimley tomorrow, <laughs> and say two five zero one, and be like, 
Motoko. <laughs> yeah, so there's no guarantee that she'll show up looking the same next time they encounter each other. But yeah, uh, the last shot of the movie is her standing above a cityscape. Uh, it's a wide, expansive cityscape, and she says to herself, where shall I go now? Uh, the net is vast and endless. Credits! Yeah. And that was Ghost in the Shell. Um, yeah. So, Kyle, uh, what did you think of this one? Yeah, great to look at. Um, I like the idea of the story. Uh, kind of get lost a little bit. Uh, feel like the... The, the suits in this movie don't really affect the story too much, um, in my opinion. Like, they, they're just kind of there. They don't really move the plot along as much. Um, but, yeah, I, uh, I liked looking at it, and uh, I tried to pay attention as best as I could, but it was a little distracting. Um, Matrix. Um, <laughs> if you've seen The Matrix, this would be kind of neat to watch because you can kind of see, like, oh, there's a little bit there, a little bit there. If you've seen Blade Runner, too, like, oh, I get a little bit, little little hints here and there. And you can see that it probably was influenced a little bit by Blade Runner and definitely influenced The Matrix. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, um, again, it's it's not exactly one of my favorite films, but it is gorgeous from an audiovisual standpoint. Uh, the themes are very, very strong. Um, it it's the kind of stuff that gets you thinking. Um, but in terms of like characters and drama, there's honestly not a whole lot there. There's not yeah. a whole lot to grab onto. Like the major and Bato, like Bato seems like a cool guy. That's about the extent I can say of him. Uh, the major, same deal. It's like she's weird. um she's not terribly relatable she's just kind of strange and has a relatable conflict but as a as a person even she isn't sure if she's a person so it's it makes it difficult to relate to on that level but um the sequel i've seen it at two very different stages in my life and i feel like i have very conflicting opinions of it i'm not sure if i like it or not but it continues to explore very very interesting themes um much like the matrix uh, i think i think it came out in like 2004 so this would be maybe even after the matrix sequels came out Hmm. um it explores the concept of like reality and perception and things like that um very it's a very challenging movie in a lot of ways and i'm not sure if it's in a good way or not but again audio visual great um but yeah, uh, I'm glad you got something out of this one. Uh, like I said, though, it's 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 certainly not a personal favorite of mine. So it, I'm glad we got a decent conversation out of it, because <laughs> there is certainly a possibility that we would not have. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, for next week's episode, um, I'm not positive because I'm trying to do these in chronological order, um, and both of the movies that I had in mind for next week uh both came out in 1997 so i'm not i'm not sure which one should come first but um i was thinking either hayao miyazaki's princess mononoke because i don't think it's fair to have a conversation about anime without exploring some of his stuff Mm -hmm. um and then the other one would be uh perfect blue uh which i think you might get a lot out of Um, okay but We'll f- we'll figure it out by next week. So for n- for now though, uh, it's going to be an either or. Um, that being said, uh, thank you so much for joining us as we caught up on cinema. Uh, tune in next week. Yeah.